Well, if you watch the news with any regularity, you've seen stories like this here in St. Louis numerous times over the years. Home robberies are a common occurrence in our world. And while in this instance it was just property that is taking, taken, having one's home invaded is still a terrible and terrifying experience. In some cases, a burglary will take place in nobody's home. Thief goes in, takes what they want, they leave, there's no interaction with the perpetrator. In this case, someone was home, and the robbers came in, they subdued the individual, tied him up, didn't harm him physically beyond the trauma of going through the incident, and departed with some goods and uh, his vehicle. In the worst cases, there is harm caused in the process of the theft, and it can be very severe. We see this crime all the time, interestingly enough, in movies. In fact, as I started doing some research about burglaries and home invasion, I was shocked at how many movies have this event as a significant or primary component of their plot line. In fact, the movie that won Best Picture at the Oscars this year, Parasite, while it's a foreign film, involves, you guessed it, a home invasion. And another movie that was nominated for Best Picture is, culminates with a home invasion. Leads us here this morning, as we continue through our series on the parables of Jesus, a series called True Story, that today's parable is about a home invasion. Now, if you've been with us the past number of weeks, you've seen that the Bible is filled with all sorts of parables. There's a, par- a parable is a story or illustration about something uh, that, while telling a story on one level, has a parallel or additional meaning uh, to it. Some parables are long, others are short. Jesus told parables during his uh, three years of ministry on earth, and many, if not most of them, Jacob said all of them, uh, are contained in the three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Now, these three Gospels are called synoptic because their style and format is different than the the Gospel of John, which is the fourth Gospel, which was also written decades after the first three were written. Now, only a small portion of all the parables in the Bible are recorded in all three of the synoptic Gospels, and today's parable is one of those, albeit a very short parable. If you have your Bibles, we're going to read Mark's version of this parable in Mark chapter 3, verse 27. If I start now, I'll probably be done with it before you get there. But you can also follow along on the screen. Here it goes. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. That's it. That's our parable today. This same verse is recorded in Matthew chapter 12, verse 29, and Luke at least gives it a second verse, Luke 11, verses 21 and 22. Same story, essentially, same brevity. I was talking about this Friday night during, we hosted a trivia night uh, for Arise to raise funds for our forthcoming church plant, and I was talking to one of the leaders here at Rooftop, and we got to talking about my message, he asked me what, we're, we're, what I'm teaching on, I told him, and he said, you know, I... Don't think bad of me, but uh, I don't know that I've ever heard that parable. And I was like, well, it's one verse in an entire chapter in the book, and it probably didn't stand out as a parable when you look at it because it's so short. So I wasn't all that surprised, and I wouldn't be surprised if many of us had never looked at that verse and said, ah, 
a parable of Jesus. But technically, it is, and it fits in that genre. So what do we know about this parable? What are some things that we can learn about this as we continue? Well, besides being very short, it is called the strongman parable. The strongman parable. And its symbolism and meaning is pretty straightforward and widely accepted as to what the parable is referring to beyond just the, the brief story it tells. And we'll get to that here in a moment. What is confusing is not so much the meaning of the parable, but rather it's the perspective that the parable takes. Because normally we would read this story through our modern lawful glasses or our, even our initial Bible glasses, and we would consider my introduction and the news clip and the movies and the other things that we've seen, and we could very easily conclude that something bad has happened in the story, the parable that Jesus has just told us. A person's home is invaded, they're detained, tied up, they're then stolen from, and the perpetrator gets away. Crime has been committed. And what do we do in response? Well, as we talked about at the beginning, this normally would be a terrible event and something that must be addressed as such. But this home invasion is different. This story actually moves in a completely different direction. Once we understand what the different persons and items in the story actually mean, we see that the story gets flipped on its head. The strong man, the person, the owner of the home, who is usually the innocent bystander, the good character, in this story is not just the bad character, but the baddest of bad characters. It's the devil himself. All right? The homeowner is the devil. Satan, as he is called, one of his many names. The house that he is living in is not a house, really, but it's a metaphor for the world around us, the world in which we live today. His goods that are there in the house with them are not actual treasures, jewelry, gold, valuables, that. It's actually the people, the people in the world. And plunder, when we hear that, while our mind might go to various piracy or marauding Vikings, is actually just the rescue or the removal of something. And so with these four items and the change in understanding, I want to reread this passage and give us what might be a different understanding than what we initially thought or we might initially attribute in value or in meaning to this parable. It goes like this. But no one can enter this devil-controlled world and rescue its people who are his possession unless he first binds the devil or Satan. Then indeed he may rescue the world. That's the parable with its actual terms replaced for the metaphorical ones. And what is Jesus saying in this parable? What's he saying in this verse in Mark? Well, let me break it down into four parts, and it flows. The meaning of this parable is this. One, God has an enemy, and that enemy is the devil named Satan, prince of the power of the air, the the Bible uses a number of the accuser of the brethren, a number of names to describe him. But God does, in fact, have an enemy. Two, this enemy of God owns the people of this world. He is their leader. He is their owner. Three, Jesus has the power 
to defeat this enemy. He has the power to defeat Satan. And fourthly, in doing so, Jesus will save the people of this world. Jesus will save the people of this world. This is the meaning of the parable. Now let's dive a little bit into these four parts. First, this idea of Satan or the devil. This is a tricky one. The devil's presence in the culture is pervasive. It manifests itself in all sorts of ways. In literature, in media, in language, in any and every aspect of our society, the idea of a devil is communicated. However, many, many people think the devil is just a myth, just a story. In 2009, the Barna Group conducted a survey among professing Christians. And believe it or not, 40% of believing Christians, that's us here in the room, strongly agreed that the devil was not a living being, but rather only a symbol for evil. 40% belief among Christians 10 years ago. And yet Jesus, in his teachings in the New Testament, and Paul in the rest of the New Testament, is very clear that Satan, the devil, is a real person and that he is the enemy of God. Two, he owns the people of this world. Because of sin and the curse that comes with it, at the time of this parable, the world belonged to Satan. Now, back after creation, in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, Genesis 3 happened. In Genesis 3, the devil, represented there by a serpent, deceives Adam and Eve, and they bring sin into the world. And sin has ruled the world ever since. The reason that Jesus is here in bodily form is because he chose not to wipe out the world and judge it for what it deserved and start over. He chose to rescue it. But at this point in his life, he has not yet gone to the cross. He has not yet given his life so that, and sacrificed himself so that the world might be saved. He's in the process. And so at the time of this parable, the world does belong to the devil, to Satan, and all the people. In fact, the world at large is a wicked, wicked place. There's one stream of people, the line of Israel from Abraham on to Jesus, and even a lot of those Israelites have abandoned God. So there is this narrow stream of people that belong to the Lord. Everybody else is in the enemy's camp. He owns the people of this world. Three, Jesus, who is God himself, has the power to defeat Satan. Jesus, though here in bodily form, he is the creator of this world. Colossians 1 says that all things, he created all things, and all things exist through him. John says that in chapter 1 as well when he's talking about the word, Jesus, who's coming. So Jesus is the creator. The devil's the creation. How a creation of God turned evil, that's a big question. It's not something we're getting into today. But from our understanding of the scriptures, the creator is always more powerful than the creation. And so Jesus has the power to defeat Satan. And we see in the coming years, months and years, he'll do that. And fourthly, in doing so, Jesus will save the people of this world. Jesus has a plan to rescue or plunder the people of earth from Satan's control, out from under the control of the strong man. 
All who would believe on him, then and now, on the Son of God, will be saved. His disciples and followers then, who were witnessing him firsthand and saw him rise from the dead and depart, and those of us today who read it in his word, in the Bible, or who hear the message on a Sunday morning, and we come face to face with God, and we believe all of us who truly believe can be saved. Even the prophet Isaiah was given an insight into this 700-ish years before Christ was born. In Isaiah 49, verses 24 through 26, the prophet Isaiah records the Lord speaking in this way. Can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken and the prey of the tyrant be rescued. For I will contend with those who contend with you and I will save your children. I will make your oppressors eat their own flesh and they shall be drunk with their own blood as with wine. Pretty graphic, I know. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. God has the power to save. And He will. Do you realize that our little parable today, that little one verse parable, is the fulfillment of prophecy for these three verses from 700 years ago written in Isaiah. Another example of the New Testament fulfilling the prophetic words written centuries earlier. And what's the prophecy? Going all the way back to then and beyond. It was God's plan that Jesus wins. He defeats Satan. He defeats the strong man. Let me say it again. Jesus wins. Amen? Amen. And this is our dilemma. When you guys were planning on coming to church this morning, had I said Jesus wins, that would not have surprised you. That's what I'm supposed to hear at church. I hear something else in that. We've got trouble. But the reality of that statement is really hard for us to internalize. One, because it becomes cliche, but two, because this world is hard and living for the Lord is hard. We're filled with all kinds of doubts and those doubts and that weariness and the tiredness and the confusion and the noise can cause us to not believe, to not plant our flag on the truth that Jesus wins. In the Gospel of John, the author John says this, recording Jesus speaking about the strong man, the devil himself. In John 10.10, he refers to the devil as a thief, and he says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Not only is he the devil God's enemy, but he is our enemy too. But Jesus will defeat him. Jesus wins. Amen. Now, that leaves us with one question, which we're going to spend the rest of our time discussing. At this time and place in Jesus' ministry, with what's going on, why would he give us this parable? Why this statement, this short phrase about a home invasion? Well, if you don't know, at this point in his ministry, Jesus is at a high mark. Jesus has recently chosen his disciples. 
They're now following him. He's going around. He's very successful. He's fulfilling more prophecy because he is proclaiming the kingdom of God having come like John the Baptist said he would. He's healing people who are blind. They can now see. The deaf can hear. Those who are lame can walk. Those who are sick with whatever sickness are healed from their affliction. And an interesting thing that we don't really get today except in some weird exorcist movies or some other media thing or some very niche aspect of our society, he's casting out demons. Now, at that time, that was a very prominent problem. People who were possessed by demons were often without clothing. They would hurt themselves. They would wander the area like animals. They often had strength much greater than the average human because of the spirit that lived within them. So you can imagine in a day with that being present, this was shocking. And Jesus would encounter these people who were demon-possessed, and he would cast out the demon, returning them to their original state. Now, we might say, that's just weird, Jeremy, and yeah, that doesn't really happen today. I don't know. I can't tell you an exact example of where it has happened, but today we have facilities, institutions for people who have serious, what we would call mental illness. Not every mental illness is demon possession, but is it possible that some people who are struggling with some type of mental illness could be impacted by some demonic spirit? It's not impossible. Whatever the event was, some type of trauma, some type of drug use, some correlation of events in their lives, who knows what they might have done or what might have happened to them. But these people aren't wandering the streets all that obviously in front of us. Maybe they are. And we just consider them a person who's hit hard times and someone we try to avoid or we walk across the street the other way. Jesus encountered these people and he loved them. He showed great compassion and mercy on them and he delivered them from their affliction. And you would think this is a good thing. You would think this is a good thing that should be celebrated because it was the fulfillment of what the Old Testament prophets had said the Messiah would do having a positive impact on the people of Israel. Ironically, though, it was very much the opposite. The fallout from this was not so good. And we have to go back from verse 27 where we started to verse 20 of Mark chapter 3 to see this. First, we encounter verse 20 in the crowds. Then he, Jesus, went home and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. The crowds were so intense. The crowds were so intrusive because of what Jesus was doing that they couldn't even get food. Now that sounds kind of like a mob to me. You ever been in a large group of people when things start getting out of hand? It's kind of scary. A mob mentality takes over. You might want to keep your sanity and semblance, but you can't prevent what the mob is going to do. This has a mob-type feel to it, which is not good, by the way. I think it's ever good to be in a mob. Secondly, Mark 3, verse 21, the next verse. He finally gets home, and when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he is out of his mind. His own mother and brothers and sisters, we believe his father had passed away by this point. They come out, not to welcome him and say, here, quick, come inside. We'll, we'll give you some food and protect you. No, something had transpired, and they were mad. They were angry. They thought he was crazy. And they didn't come out to help him. They came out to seize him. 
His family attacks him, literally. They try to abduct him. How about that for a supportive home environment? And then thirdly, the religious leaders. The people in Jerusalem, the, the, the Pharisees, the priests who were hearing about this and should have been saying, the Messiah has come, the Lord has finally delivered on his promise. They knew the Old Testament scriptures more than anybody. But that wasn't what they felt. They had actually sent a team of religious leaders down out of Jerusalem, which was elevated, down into the valley, eight, ten miles away where Nazareth was, to investigate, to find out who is this Jesus and what is he doing. We see this in Mark 3, verse 22. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, which is another name they used for the devil in a Jewish tradition. And by the prince of demons, he casts out demons. Now, I want you to know, this is not like Pastor Matt and me coming to your house because we think you're messing around with some demonology. One, I don't think we would do that. If we did, I think it would be a very weird situation. I couldn't even tell you what that would look like. Two, if you weren't doing that and we came... We'd probably like, okay, I guess I'm done at rooftop now. Don't think I'll be going back there. But that's not what it was. It was not, thanks, guys, appreciate your thoughts, close the door and walk away. This would be like if Pastor Matt and the county sheriff came to your home with the lights on in the road that you never want to happen when there's the police at your house for whatever reason because you don't want the attention. Oh, no, they're there because Israel was a religious society. It was ruled by the religious leaders. And so they could lock you up. They could accuse you, the religious leaders, unlike today where Pastor Matt and I have no legal authority over you or any pastor for that measure. And so this is what's happening. But they were attributing his miracles and his power to what? To the works of the devil. They said, you cast out demons by the power of demons. Everybody is coming against Jesus. In fact, it doesn't state it directly, but it's pretty clear to see that all three of these people groups are being used by the devil or the strong man who owns them to attack Jesus and to stop him from obeying his Father God and from doing the mission, accomplishing the mission that he has for him. Do you see this? Do you see how all three of these people who should be blessed by what Jesus is doing attack him and come against him, oppose him? This is how the strong man, this is how the devil works. Let's go back to the crowd. The people he is serving, healing the crowd, are so caught up in their own personal struggles. They see him healing some. They see him providing for some. And those who have not yet been healed or those who have additional issues that they want him to heal, what happens? In the, in the excitement and the zeal of seeing what Jesus is doing, their needs become preeminent in their lives. Has that ever happened to you? Where you had a legitimate need and all of a sudden it became, you became consumed with it and it became the most important thing in your life. It became the centerpiece of your life and you or I would do anything to try to fill or fix or address that need. That's what happened to the crowd. We all have needs. We all have difficulties and struggles. But when that becomes the preeminent issue in our life and nothing else matters, we will justify any behavior in the process of feeding or addressing that need. That's what happened to the crowd. That's what the strong man does. Secondly, Jesus' family. I mean, what's going on with them? 
I mean, later on, they're given pretty high remarks. Mary, Brother James, I mean, the whole, the whole bit. They're, they're affirmed pretty strongly throughout the rest of the New Testament and church history. But at that time, they obviously did not understand who Jesus really was. Moreover, you know what they were? They were embarrassed. They were ashamed of who this man was. He's causing trouble with the local authorities. He's got this crazy mob of people going after him. This isn't Jesus. This isn't our brother. This isn't my son. We lived with him for 30 years. He never did any of this. Shame and embarrassment is a powerful force. And in their shame, which is a very natural feeling, the strong man feeds this and it inflames and they try to take control of Jesus by physical force. A 30-year-old grown man, they try to abduct him so that he won't embarrass them anymore. This is one of my big struggles. Looking foolish because of my family and specifically my children who are here in the audience this service, so this is a little interesting. Now, Julie never makes me look bad. She's like Mary Poppins, practically perfect in every way, so she's clear. But I have children, eight of them. Eight of them. Eight. And my worst moments as a parent are usually connected to some level of embarrassment that my kids have brought on me or I perceive that they've brought on me. I believe the lie of the strong man in that moment that my ego and my reputation are the most important thing in the world and I must do whatever I can to protect those two things. Rather than value compassion and grace, which is what they and all of us need and desire. I'm at my worst as a parent in those moments. I might yell, well, actually more than might. There's a high likelihood that I will yell. I can get scary too. I can try to intimidate them into submission. Or I just feel some slight sinful pleasure making them feel weak and the shame that I am feeling because of something that I feel they have done. It makes me sad and it breaks my heart just thinking about it. Because they are wonderful and amazing gifts from God, and yet this is what we do. This is how we react. That little bit of shame, that little bit of insecurity, the, the strong man takes it and he flames it, he breathes it into a flame, and we do the things that I just talked about to our family members. And finally, you have the religious leaders in Jesus' day. I call them important people. Who are the important people in your life? Who are the important people who you want to impress, who should be impressed? Hopefully are impressed with the good things that you do, but they're not. Jesus is the true messenger of God, and he is a threat to their corrupt power over the people of Israel. They should be accepting him, humbling themselves, worshiping, saying thank you for the Messiah who has come, but rather they oppose him, they fight him. Their pride of being in that position of power, of being correct in whatever deceptive place that they are is the most important thing. 
and they will be blind to the promised Messiah of their God in order to maintain their power. Pride is a powerful and dangerous thing, and the strong man, the devil, will use that to destroy our lives, to destroy the people who we care about most in our lives, to undermine God's plan in our lives. And that is why Jesus tells this parable. As all this is happening in 2020 and 22, he goes through and he finally addresses the, the, the leaders. He says, I am not casting out the devil through demonic powers. And he gives us the quote, a house divided against itself cannot stand. The devil and his attacks on the, on the earth could not work if he was divided against himself. No, I am who I say that I am. I am God. And I have come to bind the strong man. I have come to plunder his house. I have come to liberate those who are in bondage, who are enslaved, who are blind spiritually, who are captive in their passions and self-centeredness and self-indulgence. I have come to liberate them, to plunder them, to set them free. The Apostle Peter gives us a great illustration of what this process looks like. For the believer, for once we are set free through faith in Christ, maintaining our freedom from the strong man is a challenge unto itself. And I want to close with three things to consider and to apply in our desire to be free to the strong man. If you, the passage, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 through 8, gives a very good summary of these three practices that will help us stay free of the strong man. Verse six, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you. Casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded and watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. First, verse six, humble yourselves. We have to humble ourselves. Pride is the greatest enemy to the work of God in our lives. Whatever we think we're holding on to, whatever edifice we think is being held up by our very tiring human efforts, we need to just let go. We're frail. We fail. We're mistake prone. We've sinned. Humbling ourselves is simply embracing that reality and saying, I can't be who I think I'm supposed to be. Humble yourselves, therefore, at the proper time that God may exalt you. Secondly, repent of and proclaim our weakness to God. This is what casting, verse 7, casting your anxieties on him is. We're filled with anxiety. Some of us know this. Some of us say, Jeremy, I'm the biggest worrywart you ever met. Others would say, I'm not worried about anything. Oh, contraire, mon frere. We are anxious about things. That moment when you lose your temper, that moment when you do the thing that you don't want to do, the, the anxiety in you is being tapped into, is being revealed, even if you're not aware of what that is. That's why I gave voice to my struggle with shame and embarrassment, because I need to proclaim that. I need to let God know that I'm aware of the weakness that drives my sinful behavior. 
That's part of casting my anxieties on him. Don't keep it hidden. Don't keep it to yourself. Let him, let the world know. It's one of the reasons I admire Matt the way that I do because he can do that better than maybe anybody I know. And he has my eternal respect for the courage to do that. It's an incredible model for me to try to follow and for all of us to follow. And thirdly, verse 8 be sober-minded, be watchful. We have to be alert. So many of us are living day to day and we have no idea of the garbage that's coming in. We're not staying alert. We're letting the world and the devil and the enemy feed every terrible thought. Could be the gossip at our workplace or at our school. We either contribute or maybe we're just present and we laugh every now and then when somebody else says it. If we're not actively speaking against it or removing ourselves from that, then we're part and parcel to it. We're not being alert. When we fill our minds, our eyes, and we see things that we know dishonor the Lord and are reprehensible in his eyes, but yet, well, it's just a movie. It's just media. We're not being sober-minded. And I could go on down the list. We are told to be sober-minded because what? The strong man is like a lion, crouching in the weeds, looking to devour us. And we have nothing to fear as long as we stay alert. And we continually turn ourselves over to the Lord. We need to hear all this because honestly, our lives don't look or feel like he has won or is winning as much as they should or we would like them to. Yes, Jesus wins, but we don't always feel like Jesus wins for some of the reasons that I've stated. Sickness is closing in and we can't get relief from the pain and frailty in our own bodies. Hard to think that Jesus wins. Relationships that we value and count on are fractured. And no matter what we try to do, it doesn't change them. There's still conflict continues. It doesn't feel like we're winning. Day after day, we have to listen to a barrage of negativity and whatever, critical voices about us, about people we care about. It's tiring. It's infuriating. It doesn't feel like we're winning. We're struggling against sin in our lives and we keep losing again and again and again. It doesn't feel like we're winning. It doesn't feel like the strong man is bound at all, actually. And yet, the scriptures tell us, and Jesus promises, I will bind the strong man. We can't see it. We don't feel it. But God has said it. His word affirms it. And the fact that we know what we know about God and are able to discern and understand him in the midst of the blindness under which we once lived gives testimony to the truth that Jesus wins. Jesus wins. And we can walk with him in that victory as well. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you win. You've won. You rose from the grave. The keys of hell and death that the the enemy held were given back to you. You're just waiting now. You're just waiting and rescuing more and more people from his house that someday we might all stand together and praise to give you the glory that you deserve as we wait for that day when we are called together to come and give you praise. Help us to be part of the rescue operation. Help us to be part of the plundering by how we live our life, loving you, following you, keeping the strong man bound in our lives. 
Thank you, Jesus, for rescuing us, for rescuing me. May I, may we live in that truth today, this afternoon, tonight, tomorrow, and each day thereafter. In your beautiful name we pray.